Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Job this morning. And I'd like to uh, read just kind of the opening verses as we kind of launch into a new study of this uh, Old Testament book that's been such a blessing to the church uh, down through the ages. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And so begins the story. Job tells the story of a good and a righteous man who is overwhelmed by troubles. He is stripped of his wealth, of his family, and of his health. And Job doesn't know why all of these afflictions have come upon him. But the reader of the book knows because in the first chapter we are told that God is allowing Satan to afflict Job to show, to show to Satan that Job's faith is in fact genuine. Three friends then enter the stage, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they attempt to counsel and console Job in his misery. The bulk of the book is made up of the discourses between Job and his three friends, and there are three cycles of those discourses. The friends' counsel is kind of like a broken record. They say, in effect, Job, your suffering is because of your sin, so repent and all will be well. Job knows in his heart that this is not true. He insists on his innocence and ends up challenging the very justice of God's treatment of him. A fourth friend appears, a younger man by the name of Elihu, who makes a speech, but Job makes no response to him as he did the other friends. And then God speaks. For four chapters, God speaks. And when God speaks, Job's attitude and heart is changed. He humbly repents and bows in submission to God. Then God restored to Job twofold among all of his possessions and granted him ten more children that he had lost. And God restored that blessing back to him as well. The book of Job is renowned for its assertion of the sovereignty of God, and yet it also plums the depths of human despair. It also describes the outrage of being falsely accused and the anguish of feeling deserted by God. The scope of the book is profound in its magnitude, 
And in the end, it's only God's self-revelation to Job that brings peace to his afflicted and brutally tormented heart. But in finding that peace, Job never finds the answer to the question why, but instead he must learn to trust in who God is. At some later point, I believe that the Lord revealed that heavenly scene to Job and to the writer of this book. But when God speaks, He doesn't answer Job's question of why that's burning in his heart, but merely reveals His glory and that Job must find satisfaction in knowing who God is. The book of Job is certainly a a book that challenges all sufferers to trust in God and His wisdom and in His sovereignty. Job is also unique in that for most books that we read, you kind of have to go to the end of the book to understand the full nature of the plot. But in Job, we are revealed insight into the very opening chapters to understand the nature of the plot that Job himself does not understand. So it's a very unusual book from that perspective. So what I want to do this morning is to uh, start with an introduction to the book of Job. And we'll kind of work our way through uh, the book. But uh, this morning, I want to just kind of cover some issues just to help us to appreciate the book and get a sense for uh, what it is and what it's going to teach us. The first thing I want to touch on uh, with the book of Job is the genre of the book. That is the category that you would put the, the book of Job in. And it actually fits into two areas. It's a poetic book but it's also a book that fits with wisdom literature. The bulk of the book with all these discourses between Job's friends and Job going back and forth is all written in poetic style. Now this particular style is Hebrew poetry. It's not our kind of poetry, uh, but it's definitely a poetic style. The beginning of the book of Job, the first two chapters and the last chapter are prose. But all of the middle chapters are written as poetry. Now again, our kind of poetry uh, normally rhymes. So, for example, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. And Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. So it rhymes. But in Hebrew poetry, there's no rhyming in Hebrew. Actually, what it does is it takes line one and line two, and line two repeats line one in one way or another. It's called Hebrew parallelism. You find it in the book of of, uh, Proverbs as well. But what the second line does in Hebrew poetry is it repeats the idea from the first line either in a similar way or a contrasting way or a way that illustrates line one, and that's Hebrew parallelism. That's the poetry of the Old Testament. And the book very much follows that pattern through the majority, the large middle section in the book. 
But the book of Job is also classified as wisdom literature. It expresses to us and teaches to us God's wisdom and how to live skillfully in a way to please and honor God. And the book of Job definitely contributes to that as well. It's interesting, the word for wisdom in the Hebrew language is a word that can be translated basically as skill. For example, with Bezalel and Oholiab, the two workers that made the tabernacle, who were the, the master craftsmen to make all the aspects of the tabernacle, all the furniture and everything else, they were gifted by the Holy Spirit with that skill. That word is a word that translates in other places the word wisdom. So wisdom is a godly skill in how to live your life in a fallen world in such a way that honors God. And that's the thrust of wisdom literature. It's to give us skill in how to navigate all of the reefs and the barriers when we suffer and the attitude that we should have when afflictions come our way is to give us skill in how to sail through all the obstacles and to live a life that honors God. The word wisdom or wise occurs in the book of Job 32 times. And it definitely indicates that wisdom comes through the fear of the Lord. So not only is it poetic literature, it's also wisdom literature as well. Okay, well, who's the author of the book? Well, we don't know. No one knows for sure. There's no consensus among the early rabbinic circles as to who wrote the book of Job. Some of the guesses include, of course, Job himself, or Elihu, the fourth friend, or Moses, or Solomon, or Isaiah, or Hezekiah, or Ezra. They're kind of all over the map. And we'll discuss this more as we touch upon the date of the book in a moment. But Job, no doubt, was probably the original author to have the, the information of all the speeches. And uh, obviously, you have to have a first-person understanding of all of that. So no doubt, he was very much uh, involved. Whoever the author was, I'm going to assume that, that Job was certainly in there. And later on, the Lord revealed the, the backdrop of the story, the scene in heaven later on. Uh, but uh, the, the author of the book is an extremely gifted man. Whoever that author was, he was highly educated. He was a very gifted writer. He had a superb command of the language. His portraits of nature and of animals is absolutely magnificent. He'll speak of lions, but he'll use five different words for lions. He'll speak of precious gems, but he'll use 13 different words to describe precious gems. Five of those just in describing gold. He'll describe the formation of the baby in the mother's womb, of, of weather patterns, of constellations in the sky. He knew about ancient mining practices and hunting and trapping. And he'll use six different words for traps in this book. 
He was also well informed about foreign culture, especially of Egypt, its plants and animals of the Nile. He also knew about the Arabian desert. So he was a very experienced, very knowledgeable individual who wrote the book. Well, let's uh, see what we can learn about Job himself. The meaning of the name Job is is highly debated. You read the commentaries, and uh, there's many different interpretations for the name Job. Uh, the one that I'm just presenting here comes from Gleason Archer, an Old Testament scholar, and he believes the name Job comes from the idea of to come back or to repent. And it has the idea of, of what Job finally at the end is uh, is going to do by the grace of God. But uh, there are many other suggestions to the name, so I wouldn't put a great deal of uh, weight upon this in interpretation of the meaning of his name. What we do know about Job is he was a very godly man. Again, in verse 1, he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And not only is that the opinion of the author, this is also the opinion of God Almighty. Because in verse 8, God describes Job in exactly the same way. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So we know that he was a man of high, incredibly godly character. But was he a real person? This is actually debated in some circles. Was Job just a, a fictional individual, a story about a fictional person, like some of Christ's parables, that he would tell a story about the man who went out to sow, and it's just a story that the Lord made to teach a biblical truth. And some have thought that was true of this individual called Job. But I'm convinced he was a real historical person because in Ezekiel chapter 14, in two places, Ezekiel lists Job along with Daniel and Noah as extremely righteous and godly men. And it's very unlikely to me that Ezekiel would mention a made-up character along with two historical people to set forth as examples of godliness to his readers. This, he's not going to do that. James also speaks of Job in James chapter 5, verse 11, when he says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And surely James would not appeal to the Lord's compassion and mercy upon an imaginary man to encourage the, the saints of God. So he was a real historical person. These things really did happen. Okay, something else we can also uh, talk about, and that is, where is Job's homeland? And it's called the land of Uz in verse 1. Now let me clarify, this is not the land of Oz. This is not a, a place you can go to through a portal if you have a dream in the state of Kansas. You know, there's no wizard there. This is the land of, of Uz. And uh, so we many have uh, 
study to try to determine exactly where the land of Uz is. So most believe that Job's homeland is depicted in northwest Arabia, possibly around the territory of ancient Edom. So this is, this is my guess as to where the land of, of Uz generally is located. The reason for that is because when you look at Job's friends, his counselors that come and advise him, they come from this region. For example, Eliphaz is a Temanite. For example, if you'll turn to Job chapter 2, verse 11, there is a list of these three friends, the first three that come to counsel Job. And it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Well, Eliphaz was a Temanite, and Teman was probably located somewhere in the general area of southern Edom. If you look at Zophar from Nama, he's a Namathite, they think that his city, the area that he came from, was in northwestern Arabia, and Elihu, later on the fourth friend, is descended from Buzz, and they think that this is also located in this area. So if you just look at the friends, they're kind of in this general geographical area. So Job must have lived close to them because they were friends. They had interaction together. So that's, that's a good guess. Also, it's interesting when you look at Job's friends, none of them were Israelites. None of them were in the line of Abraham and his chosen seed. So Abraham was promised his seed would come through Sarah. So that would be Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the chosen line. Esau was not. Well, from Esau comes Eliphaz and probably Zophar. They are probably descendants from Esau. Bildad, in the yellow at the bottom, actually is a descendant from Abraham, but not through Sarah, but through one of his other wives, Keturah, who gave birth to Shua, and Bildad is a Shuite. So he's not of the chosen line of Abraham either. And Elihu, being descended from Buzz, Buzz was the son of Nahor, Abraham's brother. So again, none of his friends are Israelites, it doesn't appear. So the land of Edom is probably the general area. And Edom, by the way, is the land where Esau settled, okay? So that's the general area in which the friends of Job reside. And none of them are descended from the chosen line, the chosen seed from Abraham. It's kind of interesting. 
Also, if you look at Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21, now this is written later by Jeremiah the prophet, but he says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz. So now we find that the land of Uz is probably associated generally with the area of Edom, which was south and southeast of the Dead Sea. So generally, this is where Job lived, and this is probably uh, the best guess that's out there. We also know that that uh, when his disasters start coming, the Chaldeans come, and also the Sabaeans, who are down in the southern part of Arabia, come. So again, it puts the land of us somewhere in the middle. So that's that's my best guess of where it is. John Calvin said that Job was probably an Edomite himself from the lineage of Esau. Though Esau was rejected and not in the chosen line of Abraham, yet we see God's mercy in giving grace to an individual not in Abraham's covenant line. So in other words, Job is going to be an example of God's grace extending beyond the chosen line of Abraham. So in this sense, he is a figure like Melchizedek, who is not in the chosen line either, but he was a worshiper of the true God and was a contemporary of of Abraham. So Job is kind of in that area where God reveals his grace and glory to uh, an individual that's not in Abraham's chosen line. Uh, And this is really a foreshadowing of God's grace and gospel and salvation going out to those outside the perimeters of Israel. For example, the Ninevites. When Jonah goes and preaches to them, you have an incredible uh, revival among Gentiles. You have Ruth, who is a Moabite, that gets saved and is brought in. So I think Job may very well fit that type of grace and a foreshadowing of God's mercy to the nations through the gospel of Christ. So according to Calvin, he may be right. Uh, Job was was, uh, not in the chosen line, probably an Edomite, probably from the lineage of Esau. So that's that's a, a guess, but that may very well be correct. Well, when did Job live? This is another issue to kind of establish the framework to study the book of Job. And I think that Job actually lived during the era of the patriarchs. So it's very old. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. And that general period of time is when I think Job lived. Uh, What are some of the supports for that? Well, number one, Job was the head of his family and also the priest of his family. And that would certainly fit with the patriarchal time when there, when there was no established priesthood. He was the priest for his own family. He was actually offering sacrifices for his children. Okay, he did that because he was the head of his family, and that was true of the patriarchal age. So it would fit with that. 
Also, within the book, there's no reference to the law of Moses. Again, there's no reference to Levitical priesthood. There's no official priesthood uh, operating at all. Uh, the sacrifices are not linked to the Mosaic Covenant. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle that Job goes to to bring his animal sacrifices. None of that is mentioned. But rather, the structure of his family, again, is more of the patriarchal family clan type of organization. Also, the, the names that are used in the discourses between Job and his friends primarily uses the the older names of God. The names of God that are, are more generic, but like El and God Almighty, these kinds of names. So they use they utilize the older names uh, for God, which I think also supports that it's, uh, he lived during the, the time of the patriarchs. Another support is that the, the wealth of Job, and he was a very wealthy man, is described in terms that fits with the patriarchal area, uh, time period. For example, in Genesis 26, Isaac's wealth is described in very terms similar to Job's wealth. The number of his flocks, the number of his of his sheep, uh, his herds, that he had a great household. And so his wealth is described in a similar way to the patriarchs. So that, that fits. Also, the monetary value and the, and the unit of money that once God restores Job, that his family and friends bring to Job money, that particular word for money is only used one other two other places in the Old Testament, but both of them basically describe the currency in the days of Jacob, who is one of the patriarchs. So again, that supports that Job lived during the time of the patriarchs. And again, the fact that the Chaldeans were nomads and they made up into four groups and they raided Job's property uh, instead of being city dwellers, suggests that this was a time period before the Chaldeans became an official nation with, with cities. So that seems to fit as well. Plus, Job lived to be 140 years old, and that certainly fits with the patriarchal era. Now, Moses lived to be 120, but Job lived to be 140 Abraham lived to be 175. So again, it's, it's seemingly the, the, the longevity of his years suggests that he was in that older era. So those are some of the things to consider in terms of when did Job live. Now what about the date of the book? Now this is where we run into a, to a challenge in our understanding. Because the date of the book seems to be later than the time period in which Job lived. And the reason is because in the opening prose, chapter 1 and 2, and at the end, chapter 42, the prose, it uses frequently the name of God of Yahweh. Well, the name of God 
being Yahweh, was not revealed to the patriarchs. It was only revealed to Moses, who lived, you know, 500 years after the patriarchs. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses records God's words to him when God says that I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Lord or Yahweh in the Hebrew, I did not manifest myself, I did not make myself known to them. So now you have the name Yahweh in the book of Job. And that name was not given to God's people to represent his, his character until the time of Moses. Again, 500 years or so after the patriarchs. So how do we fit all this together? Well, the story of Job is, I think, clearly in the patriarchs uh, time period. But I think at some later point, maybe Moses himself, who had the story inspired by God, updated the language of the names in the prose section to just bring it up in, in line with what God has now revealed His character, His name to be as Yahweh. So, again, it's a, it's a bit of a guesswork, but I think the time period of Job is a patriarch's. But the name Yahweh in the beginning and the end of the book suggests that Moses or someone after Moses inserted those names to just update the book. And this also was under the guiding inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do that. So other than that, you have to say that the whole book was not written until at least the days of Moses. And uh, so how did they write that book? They must have had this material handed down. So you get into different speculations. But that's the general uh, approach that, that I think probably happened, not knowing absolutely for sure. Well, what are some of the themes of the book of Job? Well, obviously, why do the righteous suffer? That's a big one. And Job's three friends answered the question, why do the righteous suffer? With the answer, they don't. The righteous don't suffer. It's only the wicked who suffer. The righteous live well. They're prosperous. They're healthy. The righteous don't suffer because suffering is always the real re result of sin. And the righteous people are not sinners like that. So they have God's blessing, God's prosperity. So Job, you have sinned obviously because you're suffering. And since Job was a great sufferer, Job, you must be a great sinner. That's, that's the heart and soul of their counsel. So this is the position of the three friends. But obviously, Job adamantly defended his innocence. Even though Job's friends have a faulty view of life, the reader knows that Job is not suffering because of his sin. We're told that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we know that the three friends are misguided. We also know that Job, wrestling under the same theology, has a lot to learn himself. Job knows something is wrong. He is suffering. 
but he's, his conscience is clear that it's not because of any great sin. So how do you explain the suffering of the righteous? And so the book is designed to challenge the defectiveness of the theologically correct orthodox view of retributive justice that dominated the ancient world. Retributive justice basically means that you reap what you sow that God deals with everybody on the same playing field. You live righteously, He will bless you. You sin, He will will bring suffering into your life. And Job is going to challenge that whole narrative. Now, retributive justice is a biblical principle. You find it throughout the Scriptures. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, that was part of the covenant of works. You obey me, you'll live. You disobey me, you will die. But after Adam sinned and broke the covenant and brought the curse of death upon him and all of his his seed, our obedience can no longer merit eternal life. We're all born as sinners. We need God's grace. But nevertheless, there is a principle that is found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that God still deals with people to a large degree, based upon their actions. The final day of judgment, the great white throne judgment, in Revelation chapter chapter 20, verse 13, says the dead will be judged and every one of them according to their deeds. They will be judged. This uh, idea continues as a standard for Christians as well. Paul says in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the principle is valid within measure, within degree. But herein lies the problem with the orthodox theology of Job's day. God operates in dealing with people in other ways besides retributive justice. There is the issue of common grace, where He deals with unbelievers in ways that are not always strictly according to retributive justice. There's matters of spiritual development buried in the secret halls of God's purposes that govern how He deals with people as well. And the book of Job will explore that in many ways. So Job is going to bring us face to face with the struggle to understand why are you suffering today? Why do you have the afflictions, the troubles, the trials that you do? And Job is going to go a long way to help us to think through that from a biblical and a God-centered direction. So number one is to teach us why the righteous suffer. Secondly, just the sovereignty of God in suffering. That God is sovereign over all of it. It's interesting, even though, even though Satan is the one who, who uh, is the immediate cause of the trials and the pain and the suffering and the losses upon Job. Throughout the whole book, it's always acknowledged that it comes ultimately from God. God is in control. Nothing can happen apart from God's will. 
And so we have to learn that God has a purpose, that God has a reason. And these are things that will be explored in the book of Job as well. So some of the lessons quickly that uh, will be brought to the surface, and there will be many more. But number one, just to teach wisdom and how to suffer, to impart a skill for living so that when we are going through suffering and trials, that we can do it in a way that honors God, that we can do it out of faith in the character of God, and we can find ourselves able to navigate those troubling waters much more easily than uh, when we don't know God and we don't know these lessons. Another purpose of the book of Job is to teach that the best of men, even a man as godly as Job, he's still a sinner and he still needs to repent. So even though Job is innocent, he's not being afflicted and suffering because of his own sin. We know that. But nevertheless, he will sin. He is a sinner and he still needs to repent. And most of the times when we think of repentance is because of the worst of men, great sinners that need to repent. But Job is going to teach us even godly need to repent on a regular basis. Another lesson is that God uses our suffering not only to prove, but to improve our faith, to sanctify us. He uses our sufferings to sanctify His people. Now, part of this is to prove to Satan that Job's faith is genuine. But secondly, it's to refine Job's faith and improve Job's faith. And he will come out the better for it at the end. The experience of suffering in one form or another is necessary for our spiritual maturity. Remember, Peter said that in 1 Peter 1.6 that you suffer if necessary, and it is necessary. We don't like to suffer, but God ordains our suffering because He has reasons. And through that, He can bring about spiritual growth and spiritual healing. He can help us to deal with sin in our life and to bring peace in the midst of our suffering. So what we're going to learn in this area is that, of course, God is sovereign over all of it. All pain has a purpose. Your pain has a purpose. And even though we may not understand what that purpose is, God knows what the purpose is. And we have to learn to trust Him. We have to learn patience. And we have to learn to trust God in times of trials. That will be a, a big theme in the book of Job. But it's also a foreshadowing of the ultimate innocent sufferer. Because Job, as an innocent sufferer himself, he's not suffering because of his own sin, merely is asserting the theological truth that sometimes suffering can occur that's not related to your sin or my sin. So you can have suffering that's not the result of that sufferer being a sinner. And this merely inserts the theological notion 
of the innocent sufferer, which will be fully completed and glorified in Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the supreme example of an innocent sufferer. And so the story of Job is kind of a foreshadowing of this incredible truth that will be embellished and glorified and enlarged and fulfilled by the Lord Jesus himself. Job realizes in the book that he needs a mediator. And as such, that is anticipating the role of Christ as our mediator and our intercessor and advocate. Job expresses in the book his confidence in his living Redeemer. And he also expresses his hope in the resurrection, which again is fulfilled in Christ, the Messiah. Job's cry throughout the book of his tormented soul for understanding, why God are you afflicting me? That question that just shouts throughout the pages of Job finds its consummated intensity when Jesus Christ is on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The book of Job, which deals with this penetrating issue of why must we suffer, is merely a foreshadowing of what Christ will experience in a far more glorious and infinite degree of bearing the curse of our sin, which brings a momentary inability to comprehend why have you forsaken me? But he's bearing the wrath of God, the curse of God. And Job experiences it on a very finite human level. But this anticipates the very author of our salvation who will be plunged into the very pain and depths of the sufferings of hell feeling abandonment by his father as he dies in our place and pays a penalty for our sin. The meaning of suffering ultimately finds redemption in the cross of Christ when the sinless Son of God bears the sorrows and the curse of our sin and suffers in our place. And he alone can bring meaning and peace to sufferers who put their trust in him. So that under the mighty hand of God, believers can learn that all pain does have a purpose, that all suffering can be sanctifying to those who learn from God. So for the believer, the crosses we bear ultimately find their meaning in the cross that Christ bore for us. Isaiah will pick up that theme of the righteous sufferer in his prophecies of the coming suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is the climax of that revelation. That suffering servant who's afflicted by God as he suffers for the sins of his people. So the vicarious substitutionary suffering is only hinted at in Job, but Isaiah is going to develop much more and ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Job also will foreshadow for us the role of a mediator because at the end of the book, God will tell Job to pray for his friends so that they might be forgiven. So now Job steps in the role of a mediator to bring about forgiveness to his friends 
who had sinned in what they said about God. So he's playing that role as a mediator. And as God ultimately revives and restores Job to his former prosperity and to his children, gives him children, it seems to prefigure in a way Christ's resurrection. For even in Isaiah 53, it speaks of the reward and the spoils of victory going to the suffering servant. And that seems to be a faint projection of the glory of Christ as well. Well, quickly, the outline of the book is broken up into three major sections. The prologue, which tells us of Job's prosperity and his testing. And then the dialogue, Job's debates with his three friends is the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 37. And finally, the epilogue, which is God's speech to Job, and then Job's repentance and his deliverance. Martin Luther said of the book, more magnificent and sublime than any other book of Scripture. That was his impression of the book of Job. G. Campbell Morgan said, in magnificence of argument and beauty of style, this book is one of the grandest in the divine library. And finally, Francis Anderson, one of the commentaries I've been reading, Job is one of the supreme offerings of the human mind to the living God and one of the best gifts of God to men. When John Calvin preached through Job, he preached 159 sermons. The Puritan Joseph Carlyle, not to be undone, preached 424 sermons on the book of Job. You've got to have the patience of Job to preach that much or to listen to that many sermons. And I will definitely spare you the ordeal. But this will be a wonderful book to dive in for a relatively short period of time uh, to discover some of the wonderful truths and lessons from this amazing book of Scripture. So may the Lord... Give us a a great appreciation for this inspired record. And may the Spirit of God teach us what we need to learn about how to trust in God in times of suffering. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for including in Holy Scripture this inspired record of the agony, the suffering of this man But Lord, through that great, intense, agonizing time in his life, Lord, you have intended it as a depth of turmoil from which we can mine so many gems of truth and encouragement and comfort for our faith in times of suffering as well. So Lord, thank you for the life of Job, our brother, And thank you for what we can learn from it. And we pray that you'll bless this series as we seek to discover your mind and your will in our suffering. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.